You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is Ace Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. Time now for another edition of Green and Gold History with Chris Townsend and Dave Feldman, our A's historian who also works for ESPN, the Pac-12 Network, and Major League Baseball. And we're doing our Top 10 series, Top 10 Shortstops in Oakland A's History. How about that? This is going to be a good one. And Dave... There have been a lot of good shortstops in Oakland A's history. It's been a lot of good shortstops, but it's funny going back and researching it and looking at looking at it. We're doing a top ten, and there are really in the A's history in Oakland eight shortstops, like solidified shortstops. Nine and ten, they were a little tough to come by. You had to do a little research to figure out who nine and ten were going to be. Oh, but always our favorite are the guys who are just outside the top ten. Just outside. These guys did not make the cut. Uh, Mario Guerrero. Mario Guerrero was the A's shortstop uh, basically in 78 and 80. Uh, He was with the Giants earlier in the 70s, and they thought of him. He was going to be a power-hitting shortstop. Now, a power-hitting shortstop in the 70s was a shortstop who had five home runs. That's a power-hitting shortstop. Let's just say the the definition of a power-hitting shortstop is going to change in the the future. Uh, Also not a power-hitting shortstop, Fred Stanley. Fred Stanley was with the Yankees when Billy Martin was the manager there. When Billy came the manager of the A's, he brought him over in 81. And Fred Stanley played a lot of short. And uh, he had a home run here at the Coliseum, one of his few home runs, that was the slowest traveling home run I've ever seen. It left his bat, and it looked like it took about 15 seconds before it cleared the left field fence. It was like slow motion home run. Exit velocity, 52. Uh, It was unreal. Uh, Rafael Bornegal who was a backup shortstop for the A's in the 90s. Tony Batista, when he was here, before he went to Toronto, became a 50-homer hitting guy. Orlando Cabrera had a season with the A's. Brandon Hicks, the Australian, hit a walk-off home run once. And uh, Stephen Drew, who came here for the second half of the 2012 season, was the A's starting shortstop in the playoffs that year. Did not make the list. Wow. That is some, uh, <laughs> okay, not top 10, but I promise the top 10 will be better, no question about it, starting with number 10. Number 10, Rob Piccolo. Again, not a power-hitting shortstop, uh, but Piccolo, or Peach, or Peachy, uh, he had a lot of nicknames in here with the A's in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, actually became the A's everyday shortstop in 1977. As the everyday shortstop again in 79, split time in 81. Uh, the thing about Rob Piccolo, good defender, not good with the bat, but the one thing Rob Piccolo did not do, he never did, was walk. Rob Piccolo played 608 games with the A's. He walked 24 times. This is not your Moneyball A's right here. He had a lifetime batting average with the A's of 234. His on-base percentage, 246. 
It was it was like it was when he would walk, it was like the game would stop. Everybody would turn around and what's happening? And it wasn't that he didn't have plate discipline. He didn't strike out all that much. He just swung. He just put the ball in play. And he was a good defender. But he's number ten on our list. And, and to defend those guys, they grew up. You wanted to put the ball in play. You didn't look to walk. Walking was just something that happened if the pitcher did not throw strikes. So obviously the philosophy in our game has changed and changed dramatically. But I don't fault those guys back then because the way you were taught to play at all levels, including the big league level, was you didn't want to get deep into counts. You didn't want to strike out and you want to put the ball in play. And the other thing with the type of hitter that he was, because he had no power, pitchers were coming right after him. Right? It wasn't like they were trying to nibble or hit corners. They're going to throw the ball right down the middle. So he had to swing because he just he wasn't a threat offensively, especially power-wise. Number nine. Number nine is Cliff Pennington. And I think Cliff kind of gets lost here in, in, in A's history. Uh, everyday shortstop in 2010 and 11 and most of 2012 before Stephen Drew came over. Um, but you look at his 2010 season as the everyday shortstop. You know, made the last out in Dallas Braden's perfect game, throwing the ball across the infield. But he hit 250, but he had 29 steals. And his war for that year, now we're seeing that here at the scoreboard in Oakland, we're seeing a lot more of it. His war for that year was 4.3. Now what does that mean? With those offensive numbers, he was a very good defender. Defense goes into the war equation. And if you look at the history of A's shortstops, that's a top 10 war season for an A's shortstop. In 2010, the way he played, he was a solid defender. He was good enough offensively to make an impact at times, and he had good speed. Um, you know, unfortunately, I think the A's, at one point when they brought in Jed Lowry, now Jed Lowry is not on this list because he was on the second base list, and that's why you won't hear his name, but they just felt Lowry was going to give them more than Cliff Pennington. In 2012, when they end up picking up Stephen Drew and finally cutting the cord with Jamil Weeks, they moved Pennington to second. And Penny was a very good defensive second baseman. I think the way he played around the bag was was hugely important for that 2012 team. But he checks in at number nine. Yeah, I think if you looked at that time, the brain trust really thought Jamile Weeks was going to be a special player and was once even said by this front office that he was the only untouchable player. And, you know, Pennington was also a first-round pick out of Texas A&M, so I really think they believe they had their middle infield for years to come with Pennington and Jamal Weeks, and boy, did that change. It did. You remember when Jamal Weeks, his, his face, his image was on all the A's marketing coming into the 2011 season, right? He was on all the pocket schedules. He was on the media. It was Jamal Weeks was going to be the guy, and he had his opportunity. And, unfortunately, he hit those two home runs, uh, opening series in Anaheim, and he thought he became a home run hitter. And his swing changed. He stopped trying to put the ball in play, start, start trying to hit for power, and he never got it back. I don't remember what year it was, but Jim Leahy used to be a vice president here. I want to say it's probably like 2013. And he had something for me, and I was doing one of the shows from the field, and he comes down and he hands me, I can't remember what he had for me, but it was in a Jamal Weeks backpack. Nice. And I was like, oh, my God, I forgot who Jamal Weeks was supposed to be with this organization. As you said, he was all over. They did backpacks. It was uh, unbelievable. So Cliff Bennington, good for him. He was a good guy. Yeah, good for him. And he checks in at number, <laughs> number nine. <laughs> number eight. That's when we get into the eight. The eight shortstops in Oakland history. And starting with eight. And eight and seven are very similar careers. Number eight is Bobby Crosby. 
Bobby Crosby, your first-round draft pick out of Long Beach State in 91, comes up in 2004, taking over for Miguel Tejada, who we'll talk about later. Uh, he's the Rookie of the Year in 2004. It's 22 homers, plays 151 games, just a solid player. And then the injuries started to happen, and it just derailed his career. And, and you look back in 2005, opening day, breaks his rib in Baltimore. Doesn't get back for another couple months. Now we're back in Baltimore, and he sprains his ankle running into Sal Fasano. His catcher misses the last month of the season. 2006, he misses the last two months of the season with a lower back strain. 2007, missed three months with a fractured left hand after getting hit by a pitch. 2008, he's finally healthy, and he gets a chance to play, but now he's missed a lot of time over the last three years, and he only hits 237 with seven home runs. He's not the same hitter we saw as a rookie. There's no power. There's no pop in his bat. Uh, in 2009, the A's decided to make him a utility player. Uh, he's going to play some first. He's going to play some third. At that point, they said Eric Chavez was going to be the everyday DH. So now Bobby's going to get time at third. And Bobby was, to say disappointed is an understatement. He was not happy. And his dad, Ed Crosby, the famous scout, was even more unhappy going to the press and complaining about Billy Bean and what they're doing to his son. But Bobby couldn't stay on the field. I mean, after that rookie year, he was just not on the field, and he was never able to become the player that everyone thought he would, would be. And it's just unfortunate. Yeah, it's really interesting when you think about, as we were just talking about Cliff Pennington and Jamile Weeks, you know, you think about that left side of the infield, what could have been if Crosby stays healthy, Chavez stays healthy. Once again, what you thought you were going to have long-term, injuries just didn't allow it. No, and, and Bobby... He was he had a little bit of that fan favor, right? Good-looking kid. Some oh. people compared him to looking at Brad Pitt. There was a fan who used to sit in the second deck behind home place right under the press box. And Bobby would come up, and she would just yell, Bobby, you're hot! Bob! And she it would just go. It would just go every at-bat, Bobby, you're so hot! And then somebody else would come up, and she'd go, you're not as hot as Bobby! The entire time. <laughs> Uh, Bobby Crosby also loved the game show The Price is Right. And he actually got tickets. One one time he got to go be in the audience. He wasn't able to compete with it. Uh, that was part of the deal. But he was sitting right behind the contestants. So the whole show, there's Bobby Crosby and his wife just sitting there. with, the, And Bobby had the hugest smile on it. You've never seen somebody so happy to be somewhere as Bobby Crosby is The Price is Right taping. You know, every year we do the Root Beer Float Day. And... One year, and they always put former players with us. And one year, they had, you know, at our old radio station, Bobby Crosby. And still, the ladies were lining up. And to me, as a baseball guy, I'm going, this can't, it's Bobby Crosby. But to, to the ladies, still love them some Bobby Crosby at number seven. He was number eight. Number seven, very similar story. Also, ladies loved him. Walt Weiss. Walt Weiss was the A's first-round pick in 85 out of North Carolina, 11th overall. Uh, makes his major league debut in 1987 as a pinch runner for Mark McGuire. This is July of 87. And he gets picked off in his major league debut from friend of the show, Dan Plesak. Really? That's your major league, league debut, getting picked off in the bottom of the ninth of a one-run game. Uh, he was sent down the next day. But he comes back at the end of uh, 87, and he has two weeks to be the everyday shortstop, and he hits 462. And the A's say, we got something here. We're going to make a change. He's going to be our shortstop starting in 88. And he becomes the rookie of the year. 
Not, you know, his offensive numbers are pedestrian, but great defense. Just solid. On a team that wins 104 games with a rookie shortstop. That just doesn't happen. And he wins rookie of the year. But much like Bobby Crosby, now the injuries start. 89, he only gets to play in 84 games. In 90, he injures himself in the ALCS and doesn't get to play in the World Series. Um, 91, he plays only 40 games because of a gruesome injury. He was lunging for first base, trying to run out a base hit. And he took a long step and ends up fracturing his uh, fibula. And actually, it was so gruesome that the bone actually comes out. You can actually see his bone. It was awful. Um, So... You know, it affects him going into 92. He only hits 212 and just never fulfilled the promise that Walt Weiss and everybody loved Walt Weiss, right? He's this kid from Staten Island who ends up going to school in North Carolina. It makes no sense. Huge fan of Bruce Springsteen. Canseco, for whatever reason, loved Walt Weiss. It was like Walt was like the only guy who could ever like almost talk Canseco down from the craziness that Canseco was about to unleash on everybody. Walt had that way with him. Um, just the injuries and you just again like Crosby you never got to see this potential Walt finally did get healthy right he went to uh the Florida Marlins at the time in a trade and then he ends up going to Colorado and Atlanta and he's part of Atlanta in a playoff teams as they're starting shortstop and hitting 280 and being a huge offensive threat as well as the defense unfortunately in Oakland we just didn't get to see that because of the injuries number six he's the guy that Bobby, uh, that uh, Walt Weiss replaced at shortstop, and that's Alfredo Griffin. And he, another guy who gets lost in A's shortstop history. He was the A's everyday shortstop for three seasons, 85, 86, and 87. He won the gold glove at shortstop in 1985. Again, people don't remember this. Uh, hit 270, stole 24 bases. 86, hits 285, steals 33 bases. 87, hits 260, but still hits, steals 26. He's a rock in the middle of the infield. Tremendous defender. Uh, good offensive player on, on, let's say, mediocre A's teams, right? Teams that were just getting to be what they were going to be in the late 80s. He saw the arrival of Conseco and Steinbach and McGuire. He was there for all that. But when it came time, after that great audition by Walt Weiss at the end of 87, they said, hey, we can make a move here because we know we have a backup. And Alfredo ends up going to the Dodgers. But uh, a great A shortstop that I think gets forgotten. You see him in the World Series in 88. Didn't he later go on to the Blue Jays? He went back to the Blue Jays, finished his career there. Uh, the one thing that he was great at, especially when he was with the Oakland, uh, was hitting with the bases loaded. He hit 387 with the bases loaded with two bases loaded triples. Uh, and five bases loaded walks, again, for a guy who doesn't walk a, a, a ton. He was just that threat. He was the A's version of Pat Tabler, who's a huge bases loaded guy. He was the A's version of that. All right, we get to our top five Oakland A's shortstops all time. You're listening to A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend on A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. And, yes, we're doing this before a game, so you're hearing uh, all the all the stuff that we get to hear here at the ballpark. The speakers here are so loud in Oakland. There's no other stadium like this because really the speakers are built for football. So we have the windows closed here in the press box, and I'm sure you can still hear the music. It it is ear thumping, isn't it? It's crazy. Especially where we are in the press box, the speakers come directly into our booth, and they just pound us. Number five. Number five, one of the most clutch athletics, Marco Scudero. 
Now, Scudero came to the A's as, a, as basically a free agent before the 2004 season, and he ends up playing second base that season as Mark Ellis was out. He had separated his shoulder with a collision with Bobby Crosby in spring training, so he misses the whole season. Scudero's great, but in 2005 and 7, that's when Scudero becomes almost your everyday shortstop. Uh, played a little second and third. 2006, in the A's ALCS, AL West champion season, He's basically the starting shortstop for the last two months, and he hits 308 with an 871 OPS. In the ALDS against the Twins, goes four for 12 with a huge, huge bases loaded double in game three that if you can hear Vince Catronio's call, one of Vince's classics. Uh, In that series, four for 12, all four hits were doubles, and he drove in six runs. In his career with the A's, nine walk-off at-bats. Nine in only three years. Three and a half years, really including a three-run walk-off home run against Mariano Rivera here at the Coliseum. When the A's were down by two with two outs, hits a three-run. He was so such a key part of the mid-2000s for a guy who could just come in and play and be productive and defensively a whiz. He just gave you everything you wanted in a in what would be really a, a fifth infielder situation. But he was more than that because he almost played every day and was productive every day. We can't prove a clutch gene. But you look at his career, he had some really clutch moments. Well, yeah, and you know, you go on, he goes on to play for the Giants in 2012. He wins the National League Championship Series MVP. And the, the iconic image of him in the rain in Game 7 against St. Louis. The Giants do not win the World Series in 2012 without Marco Scudero. Uh, that's the type of player, that's what winning teams have. You have guys like that who are just winners, who come up with the big hit or come up with the big play. And Scudero was definitely that for the A's, especially in that 2006 season. They needed his. They needed every hit that he got, and he came through time and time again. Number four. Number four, Mike Bordick. Another A's shortstop who I think get, gets forgotten. I think, you know, after Walt Weiss, the A's needed a shortstop, and Mike Bordick becomes that guy. He was undrafted out of Maine. Not quite your baseball hotbed. But the A's saw something in him. He actually comes up in 1990. He's on the World Series roster in 1990. He appears in three games because of Walt Weiss's injury. That he's on the team. 91, he ended the year as a shortstop. Started the year in 92 as a shortstop before Walt got healthy again. But in 1992, think about this on a team again, AL West champion A's. He hit 300 that year. Mike Bordick, little Mike Bordick, hitting 300. Now, what I remember is in the ALCS against the Blue Jays, he really struggled. He went one for 19. And the reason was is that Joe Carter in right field would basically play deep second base on him. Basically, you know, try and threaten him to hit it over his head in right field. And that's where Bordick got a lot of his hits off field, single into right. And Joe Carter said, I'm just going to take that away. And he played literally maybe 20 feet behind the second baseman. And Bordick talk about your early shifts it affected him and he went one for 19 and he just he wasn't the same player in the ALCS but he still had a great year but now he's the everyday shortstop from 93 to 96 he's there every day he plays a tremendous defense good offense and just a solid baseball player you know again not great A's teams right 93 to 96 you didn't see a lot he became the power hitting A's in 96 but but Bordick was was a lock in the middle of the infield and then the other thing about his career is Cal Ripken is going to move from short to third base in 1997. The Orioles need a shortstop to replace Cal Ripken. And they tag Mike Bordick with that role. Think about that. 
You're going to replace Cal Ripken as shortstop of the Baltimore Orioles, and you needed somebody like a Mike Bordick, who's just rock steady. He was not going to be intimidated, even with Ripken now playing to his right at third base. Bordick was just, he was that guy. He's, again, I think he gets lost. I think people forget who was the shortstop after Walt Weiss. It was Mike Bordick. As my late father used to say, you never want to be the guy who replaces the guy, but he was that guy. <laughs> All righty, top three, number three. Number three is Marcus Simeon, and without a doubt. And if you look, this is Mark Simmons, Mark Marcus's fifth season as the A starting shortstop. That's a long time. He plays every day. And when I say every day, every day, right? And if he continues to do this, the rest of the season, thinking that he doesn't get hurt, he's going to be out there every day, he will have played the third most games at shortstop in Oakland history. Let that sink in for a second. This is the consistency that he has brought the athletics. 2016, he's 27 home runs out of a shortstop. Now, we all remember his first year here with the 35 errors and the work that Wash went into it. And we need to appreciate how far he's come as a defensive shortstop. As we talk now, right after the All-Star break, he's made six errors. He makes every play. And that was the problem, especially with most of those errors early. It was the routine plays that he was having trouble with, whether it was sinking a throw or not fielding a, an easy ground ball cleanly. It wasn't making errors trying to make outrageous plays. It was the routine plays he was struggling with. And that's what Wash drilled into him every day, every day. And Simeon came to work every day. And he improved to the point now where you're happy to see a ball hit to the shortstop because you know there's going to be out made. Now, he's not the type of shortstop who robs guys of hits. You don't see that very often. But that's okay because the routine play is made consistently without a mistake. Huge. And now his offense is just steady, right? He's a leadoff hitter for this A's team. He's hitting 275. He's still hitting home runs. He's clutch. He drives in runs. He gives you a good at bat. He is just a solid baseball player. Who's just there, and I, and I keep saying it, I'm going to say every day. There's something to say about that for a guy who is as good defensively and as good offensively, who is just there, and you can count on him every day. You know, when I think about Marcus Simeon, I, I, I can't envision the A's going forward the next couple of years without him being shortstop. As a guy who grew up in the Bay Area, San Francisco, goes to Cal, Loves being here. His wife was a Cal volleyball player. They, their family, they, the, the kids. I just, like you said, it's one of the great turnarounds in all of baseball. I just can't envision this ball club the next few years. I don't care who's in the minor league system and Marcus not being the everyday shortstop. No, and that's the thing. He's turned himself into that guy now. You don't even think about it, right? Franklin Barreto, you're going to be the next shortstop. No, we're going to move you to second base, right? Mateo down at AAA. You're going to be our, no, we're going to move you to second base. Uh, because we have a rock there who is so good both both sides of the ball. You know, this year he's making more contact than he's ever made, and that's one of the reasons you're actually you're starting to see the average and the OPS just rise and rise. This is the highest OPS of his of his career. And defensively, he doesn't have to think about it anymore, right? So he's not taking defense to offense. We always talk about a guy taking his bad offense to defense. Simeon had that problem taking his bad defense to offense. That's not even a concern anymore. His concentration on both levels is so high. He is just, he is going to be, when we think about the Oakland A's in this era, he is going to be the guy you think of, Marcus Simeon. All right, top two. And this is not an easy list because you got one guy that won a lot of championships and another guy who was a, one of the best shortstops of his era. I went back and forth, literally went back and forth, cut and paste 
I'm going to go one, two, one, two. And finally, uh, this morning, right before we taped, I decided I'm going number two with Bert Campy Campanaris. And the reason why is as good as Bert Campanaris was for his time, in the time of not power rating shortstops, still looking back at his numbers, you go, wow, he should never have been hitting leadoff. Yeah, he had the great steal, uh, six-time stolen base champs, but he was a terrible on-base percentage. He just wasn't on-base enough. His his high for an on-base percentage for a leadoff hitter was 347 and 74. Okay, I'm not trying to disparage Burke Campanaris. I'm just saying it was a different time. And what he did in his time, he won three world championships. In Oakland history, he's sixth all-time in games. He's second all-time in hits. He's second all-time in triples, second all-time in steals. He was a five-time All-Star, six-time stolen base champ. In 1973, for the postseason, he won the Babe Ruth Award. And that's the award they gave for the best performer in the postseason. It was Campy Campanaris who won that. It wasn't Reggie Jackson who was the MVP of the World Series. It was Campy. Why? ALCS gets a leadoff homer in Game 2. Hits a walk-off homer in Game 3. Hits a go-ahead two-run homer in Game 7 of the World Series versus the Mets. Overall, he hits 308, six steals. He was he probably should have won the MVP for the World Series in 73. Uh, he hit the home run in Game 7. That was the A's first home run of the series. Realize the A's had not hit a home run in the first six games of the 73 World Series. It wasn't until Campy had a two-run homer, and then Reggie followed with another two-run homer. Reggie ended up winning the MVP. Probably should have been Campy. Of course, came up originally with the Kansas City A's in 1964. First game as a major leaguer. He hits two home runs. At the time, only the second player did two homers in his first big league game. Uh, first player to ever play nine positions in one game. This was a stunt that Charlie Finley did in 1965. Uh, you know, it was him or Billy North batting first or second on this A's team. That You had the speed, speed at the top of the lineup. He was a tremendous defender. Uh, quick around the bag. If you can see the old video of him turning double play, his feet were so fast, touching the bag, getting out of the way, not getting hit. Because, again, if you look at those videos, guys are barreling in at second base. They're going to take you out. They're going to knock you into left field. And Campy was so fast with his feet not to get hit. He also did one of my favorite things was uh, throwing a bat at a pitcher for throwing at him. Who, who hasn't wanted to do that? Now, Campy in, a, in the 72 ALCS against the Tigers gets thrown out and wings his bat. And Bowie Coons, the commissioner at the time, so suspends him for the rest of the ALCS, but lets him play in the World Series in 72, which would not happen today. He would have been suspended for the whole thing. And good thing. I mean, they A's needed him 72, but it did affect him. He wasn't the same player, but he came back and was great. And the other little trivia about Burt Campy Campanaris, he appeared in more no-hitters, either on the no-hit team or the no-hit team that got no-hit, than any other player in baseball history. He appeared in 11 different no-hitters. And his last one was in 1983. He was the starting third baseman for the New York Yankees when Dave Rigetti no-hit the Boston Red Sox. That was on 4th of July. 4th of July, 1983. Campy Campanaris is your Yankee third baseman that day. How many of those are Nolan Ryans? I, if I looked at, I think he only was in one. Um, I think he was on five times. He was on the, the winning team, six times on the losing team. Uh, he's just campy. I mean, he was great, and he's great now with the A's and, and everything that he does community-wise. I, I think campy thinks 
he should be a Hall of Famer, and he's close. But again, when you look a little closer at the numbers, he was just he was a good player in that era. But for the A's, he was everything. He was the spark plug. He was he was the roadrunner. He was everything they needed. Number one, this guy, one of my favorites of all time. I can tell you this. He was 20 years old, or we thought he was 20 years old. I was doing play-by-play for the San Jose Giants. He was playing for the Modesto A's. You're like, this kid's got 20 home runs, and it's early. And you knew he was going to be something special. I'm going to put it to you this way. There have only been three shortstops in the history of baseball to have three straight seasons of 30 homers and 100 RBIs. In the history of baseball, three straight seasons, 30 homers, 100 RBI. Alex Rodriguez did it six times. Six straight seasons. Ernie Banks had a streak of three. And our number one, Miguel Tejada, had a streak of three. As a shortstop, 2000, 30 and 115. 2001, 31 and 113. 2002, MVP year. 34 and 131. And that's not even his career high in RBIs. He had a 150 RBI season with the Orioles after he left the A's. Miguel Tejada, as an offensive shortstop, is off the charts compared to other shortstops. I mean, in the era that he came up with, right, it was Alex Rodriguez, Derek Jeter, Nomar Garcia Parra. Tejada's offensive numbers dwarfs Jeter and Garcia Parr for that time frame. And I think he kind of got he got left out because it, it was always talked about those guys, and Miguel wasn't talked about until he won the MVP and when he got the recognition that he really deserved. I mean, he comes up with the A's in 97, first big league hit, Dodger Stadium. In 99, he's still batting low in the order, but he's starting to build up. You're starting to see something, right? 99, he's 21 homers in 84. Drives in 84. And he's slowly moving up in the lineup, right? Even in the 2000 year, he's still batting in the 7 and 8. 2001, now it's 5 6. And now 2002, Giambi's gone. It's 3 4 for Miguel Tal. You just saw this progression. And we haven't talked about his defense. When we talk about how good Marcus Simeon is now, Miguel Tejada was that good when he came up. He made every routine play, he never made mistakes that way. Again, it was a, it was a player that you, you wanted the ball hit to him. He was such a well-rounded player. Played every day. He played 594 straight games from June 2000 through 2003. Hit for the cycle. Hit seven career grand slams with the A's. Had two career three-homer games. He had seven career walk-off hits, including, oh, I don't know, game 18 and 19 of the streak. I mean, he was just, and, and as much as I love Campy, and this is why I kind of battled back and forth to, to where you're going to put him. Those offensive numbers that Tejada put up as a shortstop are unreal. And it's like he wasn't even around for Moneyball. We, uh, you know, when we talked around Moneyball, you're like, wait a minute, they had the MVP for God's sakes. Uh, I, I just remember with him, it was one of those deals where you go, hey, listen, you, you, this team was loaded with stars. You had Jason Giambi here who won an MVP. You had Miguel Tejada here was an MVP. Chavez was a power-hitting third baseman. I mean, it was just – it was a lot of fun. 
it, it was a great time for A's baseball and to come to the ballpark and going to the playoffs and the big three. And it was just the expectations of winning a title again. And just, you know, Miggy was a guy that was just so, you know, so talented. And he knew it from such an early age, as you mentioned. You know, to have that kind of pop is a shortstop. Unreal. Yeah, you talk about the early age and what he came from in the Dominican Republic. And there was a great book written by Marcus Breton about him coming up and through the A's system and really dirt poor doesn't even describe it. Well, maybe it does because he really was. He was in dirt. He just, he didn't have gloves. They didn't have equipment and they made their way. And, but he just had that spark of playing baseball. And I remember when he was in the minors and, and the talk about this kid that was coming up and this power hitting middle infielder, which you just didn't see at the time, but for to come up and to realize that whole potential. And he did. He reached his potential. I mean, those, you know, he's still the only Oakland Athletics to ever have 200 hits in a season. No other Oakland Athletic has ever done that. Uh, just, I just think, I hope that people appreciate what they had in Miguel Tejada when he was here. And I still think, and there are a lot of fans out there that thought it was a choice that the A's made to either sign Eric Chavez long-term or Miguel Tejada long-term. And, and maybe it was, and the A's decided to go with Eric Chavez. Um, I would have loved it to have been Miguel Tejada. He had great years in Baltimore, like we said, 150 RBI years. He had great years in Houston, uh, all-star game MVP. He had so much left in his tank as a hitter and as a defender. Um, I remember when he finished his career with the Royals, and I remember talking to the Royals people, like, what's it like having Miguel Tejada? And they said, he's like a leader for these young kids. He shows everybody how to play. And I remember him as a young kid and people having to teach him how to do things. And it was just great to see him pass it along. He was just, he was just fantastic. Our top 10 Oakland A's shortstops all time. Number 10, Rob Piccolo. Number nine, Cliff Pennington. Number eight, Bobby Crosby. Number seven, Walt Weiss. Number six, Alfredo Griffin. Number five, Marco Scudero. Number four, Mike Bordick. Number three, Marcus Simeon. Number two, Bert Campy Campaneris. And the number one Oakland A's shortstop of all time, Miguel Tejada. That has been your top ten all-time Oakland A's shortstops you've been listening to green and gold history with a great dave feldman chopping it up where will we go next i'm thinking it's time to go to left-handed starting pitchers left-handed starting pitchers that will be interesting great because you got guys that won championships a lot of hardware different eras we will see you next time right here on green and gold history on ace cast powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. 